Hi and welcome to the EVJ podcast. Throughout December we're releasing four podcasts based on the news hour sessions given at this year's Beaver Congress. A review of the current literature in four different disciplines, including medicine, reproduction, lameness and surgery, will be released over the coming month. In this episode, Bruce Bladen presents the recent literature on equine surgery. Thank you. Without doubt, of course, the highlight of 2018 was the inaugural Beaver Cycle Sportif through through the city of York and and up onto the North York Moors. But in the unlikely event that you'd rather hear um, about surgery than about that, then then I'm afraid that's um, what, uh, what you're going to get now. So, reviewing the sort of, sort of papers that have, have come out this year, I thought we'd start with, with, with orthopedics, start with, with, with real surgery, um, and uh, looked at this paper from veterinary surgery, pancarpal and partial carpal arthrodesis with three locking compression plates in six horses. Carpal arthrodesis obviously is a salvage procedure um, for cases with multiple carpal fractures and, and usually with, with carpal collapse and, and angular limb deformities and, and axial instability of the limb. Fabrice Rosnell, Brandenburger and um, uh, Fabrice Rosnell had already published um, the, the details of this technique in equine veterinary education, but briefly the knee is triple plated after the articular cartilage has all been removed arthroscopically. And the, and the essence is to use short plates which end in the metaphysis or even the epiphysis of the radius and the proximal metacarpus rather than longer plates which might end in, in the mid-diaphyseal region. And this is done minimally invasively, so the plates are tunneled subcutaneously and then little stab incisions are made uh, over the palpable holes in the plates just to put the screws in um, in, in those, those spots. And the procedure can either be done as a, as a pancarpal arthrodesis, just, just taking out the, both, both knee joints um, completely, or partial carpal arthrodesis, either taking out the antibrachiocarpal joint or the carpometacarpal and, and the midcarpal joint. I've had a go at this. I can tell you it is, it is a big job. Um, the surgery times in the paper are between three and four hours uh, of these cases. And remember, there's quite a bit sort of, 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 of preparation time as well, intravenous perfusions beforehand and, and putting a cast on and such like. So it, it is a long-term procedure. But nevertheless, the, the, the results um, the, the authors found were good. All six of the horses were pasture sound. Um, and one horse with arthrodesis of the middle carpal joint only was actually in light-ridden exercise, so some quite encouraging results. There have been quite a lot of uh, papers in recent times looking at risk factors for racing injuries and, 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 and fractures. So this was quite an interesting alternative, actually starting to look at kick injuries rather than, than the, the more usual sort of spontaneous type stress fractures um, that we see. This is from Zurich, this paper, 1,845 horses with fractures over a 25-year period. Now, just to um, save you doing the maths, I've done it for you. That is one and a half horses every week um, coming in with, with a fracture. So that is a fairly healthy case supply. The cause was known in 1,144 of these cases, and a kick was the commonest cause of, lame, of, of the fracture uh, in 499 cases. Again, the slightly unsolved thing about this is if they were getting one and a half horses in every week uh, is why they didn't wait another three or four days and, and, and go for the 500 cases, but, but still. 
They found that survival was less likely in fractures associated with severe comminution and with severe lameness. Those were, those were the risk factors for non-survival. And for long bone fractures, survival was less likely when the fracture was open, but not with the, not with the, the shorter bones. Survival less likely with fractures of the femur, the middle phalanx, the, the, the proximal phalanx, up to this end, the more likely survival, fractures of the head, uh, fractures of the splint bones. I think we know these, these all do well. I was very surprised they were getting good results with fractures of the proximal sesamoid bones, knowing how easily they can move on to osteomyelitis and septic tendon sheaths um, and, and such like. So moving away from orthopedics, castration, commonest procedure performed in the horse, um, but actually quite a bit of, of stuff published on castration this year. First paper from Abbas et al, local mepivacaine before castration of horses under metatomidine isoflurane balanced anesthesia is effective to reduce perioperative nociception and cytokine release. So this was uh, obviously done at castration, done under general anesthetic and uh, divided into two groups, those in blue treated with mepivacaine and those in red with no, no mepivacaine. And they use scoring systems to evaluate the pain. Uh, this one is the Utrecht University Scale for Composite Pain Assessment. This one is, the, they, they use two of them were the face-based systems. This one's the Utrecht University Scale for Facial Assessment of Pain. And you can see that the, those horses treated with um, local anesthetic showed significantly less post-operative pain after surgery. So four, eight, and 24 hours um, after surgery, le less evidence of pain. And then this is with the horse grimace scale, and the same thing, less, less pain um, after surgery. They also looked at cytokine levels, um, interleukin-6 in red with no local anesthetic, and in blue um, with local anesthetic. I think this paper was, 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 was quite nice in that it was absolutely conclusive. There was no, no sort of other way to interpret the results. Local anesthesia of the testes should be used during castration under general anesthesia. They were just injecting local anesthetic straight into the, into the testes as a simple thing to do, and, and it does reduce post-operative pain and inflammation. While we think of um, castration, uh, this was a, a nice paper, prevalence of complications associated with the use of the Hendon, Henderson equine castrating instrument. That's Hinton et al. For those of you not familiar with it, this is the, uh, the, the Henderson castrating tool. It's, it's a drill-based system simply to twist the testis up and, and so to control, control hemorrhage by twisting rather than by, by crushing, as in with the more, more conventional emasculators. You see, they just sort of set it going, then progressively increase the speed of twisting until the testis actually comes off. I got this uh, video off YouTube. There you go, and that's it, done. They put a nice uh, flow chart in, in, the, in the paper. All papers seem to have these flow charts nowadays, and they are, they are quite good, they allow you to see it. So 252 horses, um, 225, 89% no, of them no complications. And then these were the complications. They had evisceration in one horse, um, and they had a mental herniation in another two horses. Botulism, fever, and then obviously quite a bit of swelling and seroma formation, as, as you would expect with any, um, any analysis of, of castrations. But, uh, so, you know, uh, reviewed a, a novel technique quite nicely. And also in complications, open standing castration in thoroughbred racehorses in Hong Kong, prevalence and severity of complications 30 days post-castration. 
250 horses in this one, again with a, an, a nice flow chart um, to go through it. But the, the, the relevant thing to see here, complications were recorded in 150 horses, 60% of the horses. They have quite a little bit of information in the paper about antibiotic use. Um, they found sensitivity testing showed that bacteria cultured were resistant to oxytetracyclines in 90% of them, metronidazole, similarly nearly 90%, TMPS over 80%, and penicillin over 70%, and nearly half of them were resistant to gentamicin as well. But usually, um, resist, usually sensitive to, to what they termed reserved antibiotics, enrofloxacin, and to ceftiofur. In fact, all cases were sensitive to ceftiofur. And they discuss this issue of the complications, say how it is the complication rate was two to three times higher than that reported in other studies. And they debate whether it could be to do with the hot and humid climate in Hong Kong. But, but I think they, they reach the very reasonable conclusion is that their, their, their recording of complication is more comprehensive than it is in other studies, which, again, you would expect with the unique veterinary control over all horses um, in, in Hong Kong. And uh, staying on the theme of um, complications, I, I, I am, yeah, well, well, anyway. Um, uncommon castration complication, penile amputation and sheath ablation following an iatrogenic phallectomy. Beavers and Mitchell. I should stress that the uh, authors represent the referral hospital and not the original surgeon. This is the original surgeon. Um, and they describe it quite beautifully and elegantly in the paper. They say the penis underlying the scrotum was emasculated instead of the testis. This resulted in the distal free portion of the penis being severed and falling from the prepuce. Now, I wouldn't wish complications on anyone. It is always ghastly when you know you've done something wrong. But you have to read that and feel that there is a certain macabre humor in the, in the idea of the sort of penis just dropping off as, as, as you're doing the castration. Anyway, they, they, they removed the penis um, and uh, did a urethrostomy, and they also removed the testis, which obviously hadn't uh, been taken out. And this horse did very well, had a, a good, good long-term outcome. They did find that castration, they, they comment that castration complications are one of the leading causes of malpractice complaints against equine veterinary surgeons in North America. And I, I did speak to the VDS um, quickly, and, and, um, and they said that, you know, they do get castration complications, but about 50% of the claims in the UK are about pre-purchase examinations, vettings, and about 3% of their claims are to do with castration. Moving on to upper airway, um, outcomes after medical and surgical interventions in horses with temporohyoid osteoarthropathy. Temporohyoid osteoarthropathy is one of my favorite conditions. This is why this paper is in. Um, they had 77 horses. 20 of them were treated by medical management. 35 of them treated by serratohyoidectomy. Um, and they found good results. 65% returned to exercise following serratohyoidectomy and only 12% following medical management. Medical therapy compared to serratohyoidectomy was significantly associated with non-survival. So, so I think confirmed what we knew that this is, this is, is an effective and, and useful and beneficial surgery in this condition. And guttural pouch mycosis, salpingopharyngeal fistula as a treatment for guttural pouch mycosis in seven horses, Watkins and Parenti. Now, this was for horses with guttural pouch mycosis, but not with hemorrhage. So this wasn't sort of actively bleeding horses. This was when it was diagnosed as dysphagia or, or, or nasal discharge um, or such like. 
And what they did was they, they, they'd, with laser, they dissected through the dorsal pharyngeal wall to create a fistula directly into the, the guttural pouch. And their reasoning was that they, they said it might change the local atmospheric environment and therefore prohibit further fungal growth. And, and they observed resolution of nasal discharge in all horses, 10 to 30 days um, for the four horses that had, had nasal discharge. And that when they rescoped them, they found resolution of the fungal plaques in all horses at one to six months. So it did seem that, that it, it, did, it did work. One horse was euthanized because of persistent dysphagia, though it still had had resolution of, of the uh, fungal plaques. In vitro evaluation of the effect of a prototype dynamic laryngoplasty system on arotenoid abduction by Ben Ahern um, and others published in veterinary surgery. Now, pacemaker studies um, of laryngeal abduction have been around for a long time. There's been all sorts of electrical um, um, things used to, to build the muscle up and such like, but none of them have progressed on into standard surgical practice. This is a, a more simpler mechanical model. It's a cadaver study. And what they did was place the balloon, or placed a, a, just a simple balloon between the suture threads and then expanded the balloon by injection with water. So I hope you can see this, that here's the balloon between these plastic discs. This is not opened, and there is, is the larynx not completely abducted. And, and then the, the balloon has been expanded to obviously push the sutures apart, and, and you can see that the larynx is now fully, fully abducted. And, and, it, and, and the paper showed quite clearly that, that it did work, that the, the, the greater pressure did lead to increased abduction of, of the larynx. And, and their conclusion, which I think is, is, is absolutely valid, was these results support further evaluation of this device with a long-term goal of developing a means for post-operative selective alteration of arotenoid abduction in horses. And then modified first or second cervical nerve transplantation technique for the treatment of recurrent laryngeal neuropathy in horses, Fabrice Rosignol um, and others. So this obviously now is, is perhaps the search for a biological solution to, to this, this condition. Nerve implantation, neuromuscular pedicle grafting and nerve anastomosis has been possible treatment options for, for, for many years and Ian Fulton reviewed this very well um, back in I think, 2003 this was. This technique involves taking the, the combined first and second cervical nerves, which innovate the omohydoideus muscle, pretty much through a standard tieback approach. And the muscle, the nerve is then tunneled through, there's the nerve tunneled through the cricoarotenoideus dorsalis muscle. This is the cricopharyngeus muscle here. This is the dorsal aspect of the larynx. They tunnel the nerve through it. 17 horses. Um, 11 out of 12 of them had electrical stimulation, which confirmed laryngeal re-innovation. 9 out of 14 um, had subsequent overground endoscopy, and, and the levels of RLN, the RLN grade, was improved in 9, out of, or nine of them, so most of them. But equally, the authors do say that only seven out of nine horses, uh, seven out of nine were showing grade C abduction, so, so relatively disappointing abduction, um, 12 months after surgery. And that, their comments were that the overall arotenoid abduction was suboptimal, but it was expected to be equivalent to that of many horses after laryngoplasty, which again is a very fair point. We know that, that tiebacks do fail over time. And colic surgery. Um, 
Cecal interception in the horse, ultrasonographic findings and survival to hospital discharge of 60 cases. I thought this was, was, was a fabulous paper. I really enjoyed reading this. And this uh, got my award for paper of the year. I thought, um, you know, so I know it's a very um, sought after award. This one comes with a, a, a prize beyond monetary value. And um, yeah, I like this paper a lot. 60 horses compiled over five years. That's, that's one a month with a, with a sequel into susception. And during that time, they had 3,269 colic cases which underwent abdominal ultrasonography. That, again, to say if you're doing the maths I've done, is 12 and a half cases per week, so a very healthy colic case supply. 1.8% of their cases of colic were into sequel intersusceptions. 14 were just seco-sequel intersusceptions, while 46, 75% of them were seco-colic intersusception. They managed to diagnose all the intersusceptions ultrasonographically. In 55 cases, and so 92%, they made a correct differentiation between seco-sequel and seco-colic intersusceptions. But in one horse with a seco-sequel, uh, they did diagnose it as a seco-colic. Um, four horses they couldn't differentiate and two, two diagnosed with cecocolic intersusceptions actually just had tiflitis. So um, very impressive ultrasound results as well. And then their results of surgery, uh, 13 out of 38 horses, uh, reduction was, was actually possible. Um, and the same proportion, 34%, had to have the apex of the, of the, of the cecum removed. Only in four horses did they have to do this technique of, of opening the colon and resecting the cecum actually inside the colon. And eight of them were subject to euthanasia um, just, just, just straight off, were, were, were put down for economic grounds when, once, they, once they'd started surgery. Survival to discharge after simple surgery, so, so just reducing it or, or doing it, um, was, was 92%. Um, so successful surgery there. Still quite successful if they just took off the end of the cecum, 84% success. Um, but once um, we were getting into cutting into the colon, actually some less successful 50% of, of those cases. Thomas van Bergen's paper, uh, Foramen Epiploica Mesh Closure Through a Ventral Midline Laparotomy. I saw this has won an award for the, the best uh, video to, to, to go with it. This paper is a step on from the, the author's uh, work on laparoscopic studies um, and is, is an experimental study. Um, so, so just uh, experimental animals. They confirmed the mesh placement in laparotomy in six horses. And at post-mortem 30 days later, all of the horses showed fibrous obliteration of the epiploic foramen with, with, with dense fibrous tissue. Um, so it does seem to be very effective. You can put the mesh in during, during, during a laparotomy. It doesn't move, and it does obliterate the epiploic foramen. So the question we're left with, of course, is do you dare do it in a clinical case? Obviously, if you get infection on, on a mesh and you put it in that, that location in the abdomen, realistically, you're going to have a dead horse. So, so you know, sort of slightly, slightly um, high-pressure high um, thing to do. Non-strangulating intestinal infarctions associated with strongylus vulgaris. I suppose this is probably a medicine case, but anyway. Clinical presentation and treatment outcomes of 30 horses um, by Peel et al. This comes from Denmark. 30 cases um, of non-strangulating infarction. Here is the flow chart. Uh, 38, eight of them are excluded for concurrent conditions. Uh, 30, they tried medical treatment in nine, completely unsuccessful, all of them dead. Uh, 21 of them went to surgery. 
11 put down at the time because of the severity of the disease, um, 10 surgery went ahead, nine of them having a resection, one just adhesiolysis, um, seven of them died, leaving us with three um, that actually survived to discharge. The good news, though, was that if they did survive to discharge, they seemed to survive long term. So, so yeah, 10% success. Who about you is worried about a future without effective antelmintics, eh? Which nicely brings me on um, to, to the last one to mention, infections caused by multi-drug resistant bacteria in an equine hospital. Um, this is from Zurich, Van Spike et al. 110 infections caused by 158 multiple drug resistant isolates were diagnosed. Most of the infections were post-procedural, um, including incisional infections, 70% of them, 25% on various implants, and 6% were phlebitis. Many bacteria um, were, were identified. The commonest were E. coli and Staphylococcus aureus. Almost all the horses, 89%, had had antimicrobial treatment prior to the development of the multidrug-resistant infection. And the mortality rate of all horses with infections caused by multidrug-resistant isolates was 20%. So it's a significant cause of, of mortality. So, so again, those of us worried about the antelmintics can also worry about our future with no antibiotics. And finally to mention, um, this is an a, uh, editorial by David Rendell and Stephen Page, a very good authoritative article about antimicrobial resistance in companion animals. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. Um, just to remind you that all the EVE and EVJ articles are available online uh, through the journal web pages, and to thank Beaver Journals who've uh, sponsored this session. <laughs>